The year 2020 wasn't just a public health nightmare. It was also a terrible year in terms of crime, specifically homicide. Once all the crime data for last year is compiled, we will likely see the single highest increase in homicides ever. Why is that? And where do we go from here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Beyond Bias, the open-minded perspective podcast. I am your host, Dr. Craig Albert, Associate Professor of Political Science at Augusta University. In this new podcast series, we will talk to experts from different fields who will help us better understand our world. We hope to gain insight into how we can view politics, society, and culture from various perspectives. Today's guest we are happy to have is Dr. Kim Davies, Interim Dean, Pamplin College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at Augusta University. Dr. Davies' academic focus is on gender, homicide, and violence by and against women. And she is currently the president of the Homicide Research Working Group, which hopefully we can get into as well. Thank you for being here, Dr. Davies. I appreciate you having me here. I should also say that uh, Dr. Davies was one of my undergraduate professors when I was a student at then Augusta State University. And so this is kind of really exciting for me to, to get to talk to you as, as a colleague. And it's been a, a pleasure to work for you and with you. Let's get right into it then. Uh, the first question is, uh, what are the reasons for this spike in homicide rates in 2020? Why is the U.S. seeing this type of increase in homicide? Well, we, we can only surmise right now. We're going to do a better job of this probably when we get the data in and we can see different types of homicide and how they've increased or, um, or not increased. But in all likelihood, we, we think it's probably confrontational homicides that are increasing. And that's something a lot of people don't think about. Most homicide is confrontational. It's homicide that's happening between two people who essentially have a beef with each other. Often it grows out of something small. You park in my parking space. You, you drive over my driveway a little bit. Um, you look at, um, it, it's often it's two men. One man looks at the other uh, man's girlfriend a little bit off, or there's a bump in a, in a pub or a club. And it es escalates into them getting into a fight and somebody grabs something that's a weapon. Often that's a gun in the United States, but not always. We see all kinds of things used as gun. Um, and some of this is the confrontational homicide also revolves around gang gangs and, and their confrontations with one another. So I'm expecting a lot of that homicide to be confrontational. And I'm expecting it to play out of more people being at home and, and having the opportunity to have more homicide. That sounds weird, but more opportunity for confrontations. Well, just so I understand, what, what, what are there some other categories of homicides? We have confrontational, which... Correct me if I'm wrong here. So it's like a confrontation happens. It's not premeditated or it's not, uh, you know, planned. It's just something happens in, in the heat of an argument or an argument happens. And so it sounds, it's defined exactly how it sounds. Confrontational. A confrontation absolutely. happens and a murder is the result. So what are some of the other categories? Well, then, like we said, gangs, maybe territories, things like that. Uh, um, okay. So that, that happens. And we're suspecting that that's going to be a lot of them, too. Um, we know that... When we had really high rates of homicide in the 1990s, that that was tied to, or, or the data showed that a small number of cities with high youth violence or young people violence, so maybe from the ages of 15 to 23, 24, was driving that those numbers. And a lot of that was tied to gangs. Um, and we expect, so that may be happening again, that, it, that those categories, uh, or that group, those groups were fighting for territory. So that can be something. And, and one of the reasons we might see that happening is those groups don't rely on the police to settle their 
we're going to say beefs, they don't, they, they, the police don't seem to help them or they don't trust the police, so they settle some, some of the confrontations themselves. Another thing might be domestic violence. And we, then that's a category or intimate partner violence is, so domestic violence or family violence might include killing of children or other family members. But we see intimate partner homicide, the killing of somebody that you're in a, um, a sexual relationship or, or a relationship that has been sexual, so ex-partners. And I expect those to probably be up as well because lots of us have been stuck in homes with one another or the frontline workers are very stressed. So there are people, you know, you have to be careful here because some of us have been stuck at home and then others of us have been pushed to be out in front and stress with other people. And either way, that stress can be contributing to people having shorter tempers and us turning to violence more quickly. So the crime rate or the murder rate was high in the 90s. Yes. But this 2020 might be the highest single year spike. Does that mean that so far, we're still lower rates of homicide in 2020 as a, as a time period versus the 90s? Or does that year jump mean it's going to be higher than it has been ever? Yeah, I think that the data that I've seen suggests that it's not going to be higher. It's just going to be a spike. And, and that you're asking, you're great social scientists, as we know, um, and you're asking great questions because sometimes you're hearing reports that it's a 100% increase. Well, it was 12 in this city, and now it's 24. So you do have to be really careful about talking about percentage increases. It's still horrible. I mean, the one thing we, that sometimes um, we, I have to point out to the students in my homicide class who get, you know, there's some students who are so excited about kind of studying this that sometimes you have to stop and say, let's think about what we're studying. The tragic loss of somebody's life unexpectedly. So even if it went from 12 to 24, and that doesn't seem like huge, it's still, that many people have lost lives. I'm glad you brought that up. You know, I teach in war studies and ethnic conflict, and that's one of the biggest arguments, one of the biggest pleas I, I have when, we talk to, when I talk to my students is, we read these numbers, you know, how many people died in Rwanda or Chechnya or Kosovo. Like, I think it's part of the human condition to, to be good social scientists. We have to realize that those are lives that we're talking about. So we have to be empathetic when we read that. But at the same time, as social scientists, we can't get lost in the empathy and the emotional aspect of that, right? Because that's, that's too hard for anybody to handle. How do you deal with that when, when you study? I mean, you said domestic violence, and all of a sudden that hit a different chord for me just with you saying that, like domestic violence leading to murder, and then you brought out children. How does a good social scientist stay human while being able to study that. Yeah, I think we all have different ways of dealing with it. I'll give you an example. I, um, I, I work with um, a, a couple whose um, daughter was murdered in 1994, the Rondos. We actually have a scholarship for them at our university. And um, they've made me extremely aware of how close it can be. And, I, and I've thought about things with you know, working with them and you know, how we trivialize homicide. So they've helped make me very aware. But working with them, I was curious about um, how, peop how the, the system treats them, how they deal with the system, how survivors deal with the system. And we call them homicide survivors if you've had somebody in your family killed. We, we call you a survivor if, you know, if my wife or your wife had died, we'd call us survivors. But I, wanted to, I was curious about researching that, and I started doing literature reviews on that, and I did even a presentation about that, and decided um, it wasn't for me. Wasn't I... I'm very empathetic, but I couldn't go that deep 
with these people. It wasn't my kind of research. Now, we have um, Dr. B. Miller in the Department of Social Sciences in Pamplin College who studies child homicide. That's something that's really difficult, but she's able to somehow do that, and, and partly it's because of her mission of, of trying to help people. Um, but yeah, so how do you balance that? I, I, I think it, it's, a, it's a difficulty that any of us who study it face, but I think part of it is the looking at the good you're, you're trying to do. Yeah, we, we have to look at the good, and I think it's important to remind the audience and remind students that these are lives, and so as good social scientists, we have to take account for that. We can't just look at them as pure data. Yeah. I, th I think it's, I personally think it's an ethical obligation to keep in mind that these are people's lives, because am, what are we doing if we're not trying to influence policy to help people in, in social sciences? And so we have to be you know, human-centric, I think, as much as we can be without letting it get to us. That's a hard area. I don't know if I could do that area. Yeah. Well, your so. area. Yeah, I mean, yeah, people it's... say the same for me. <laughs> like, you know, I wanted to, to do interviews for victims of ethnic conflict and ethnic cleansing. That means uh, uh, one ethnic group or government uh, forced another ethnic group out of a particular area. Sometimes it involves killing and goes along with genocide. Oftentimes it doesn't. It just means that they're pushing incomplete people out of another area. And one area of research I was interested in is how people dealt with that emotionally. But as soon as I started looking at other investigations and questions and heard some of the interviews, I, I came to the same conclusion that this is just not for me. Like, I, can't, I can't sit with a person and hear what, how this happened. Like, it's, it hurts my psychology too much. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. This is lighthearted stuff we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Huh? That's a, I do want to let the audience know, if you're, if you're not watching us on our YouTube channel, we do have masks on, so we're, we're social distancing as best as we can, but if my voice is muffled a little bit, or if Dr. Davies' voice is muffled, we do have masks on, so we, uh, we wanted to do this in person rather than via Zoom or anything, because we wanted it to be a more intimate, personal conversation, but just in case you hear anything, I did want to go ahead and throw that out if you're not watching us on our YouTube uh, channel. So you mentioned this a little bit, that the pandemic is probably playing a, a role. So if we did not have the pandemic, maybe we would not see that, that spike in 2020? Yeah, I think the pandemic's definitely playing in. Um, even people, if, we, if there, there's a chance that some of this homicide might be tied to some other type of crime, so maybe that's playing in. My guess is not. My guess is uh, robbery is down because there's fewer places to rob because places haven't been opened. So robbery, homicide's probably down. Um, but then the other thing that is going on is um, we have a new president now, but think about, I know you know this is political science. This last year is, has been just extremely unusual. We couldn't predict how the, the elections were gonna be run, what the reactions were gonna be, how people were gonna deal with it. Um, all this stuff is just, it, it, in sociology, we talk about um, Durkheim as a theorist who talked about anomie, and that's when there, there's no norms. We don't know how to behave because society is shifting so, so quickly and things are so different. He talked about it with industrialization, but it certainly fits what we've been going through politically in our society. And when we have this normlessness and people don't know how to behave, there's stress, some of that can play in to, to people not knowing what to do and, and being you know, more frustrated, more angry, more quick to use their tempers, and then things. We have racial tension right now in this country, too. And 
even if like confrontational homicide isn't race-based, could racial tensions be one of those underlying agitations that, that help cause this? Yeah, I, and it's important to say it's not likely that white people are there could be white people killing black people and black people killing white people, but mostly we find that um, homicide is intra-racial. White people kill white people and black people kill black people. Oh, and part of that's because we have segregation in our society still. Black people live with black people and white people live with white people. That continues to change. We see the interracial um, marriage rate and, and relationship rate going up. Sociologists will tell you that. But by and far, we kill people who look like us. And, um, but, but just that stress, what's going on in society, plays into it. When, when we have um, stress, we, things are unpredictable, that can play in. So we have some construction <laughs> going on. So if you hear anything, uh, that's what that is. So 2020 was the perfect storm for, for variables leading to at least confrontational homicide. A- absolutely. Wow, that's a... That's tough. That's a, that's a tough year. Do you see it just so far? I mean, I know we're only a month in, but do you see it going down any, or is it leveling off, or do you think the rate will still be the same, you know, the first quarter of 2021? Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen data on this yet, so I'm, I'm hopeful, but we're still seeing uh, politicians go at each other a little bit. We're still seeing some of that, so some of that normlessness Anime may play in, um, but we the, the economy um, may be getting better. More people are getting back to work, so that can help because we tend to – I have a, a section in my um, textbook called um, It's the Economy, Stupid, and that's not me that said that first, but um, sometimes the you know economics play in when, when people – and again, I'm not saying poor people go kill people. I'm saying the stress plays in to crime. So stress is a major motivating factor. Yeah. Merton's stress theory would suggest that. Um, um, lots of our research suggests that, that that plays into all kinds of deviance. Let's change topics just a little okay. bit. If you feel comfortable, can you tell us how and why you got into studying this? Uh, what led you to your particular research and teaching interest? Yeah, this is where I say, well, I'm, I am a serial killer. No, I'm joking. Do not quote me on that. Um, no, why did I get into this? Well, I, um, I have two undergraduate, undergraduate degrees from The Ohio State University. I appreciate you, Michigan guy, saying that. Um, I have one degree in women's studies and one degree in sociology, and I was studying gender. Uh, I was interested in studying gender, and I went on to get my master's degree. Um, I'll try not to say the Ohio State University too often, um, at the Ohio State University. And I was studying um, with a, a professor in criminology who um, was studying pornography, of all things. I don't know that, you know, we'd get into pornography as well on your first podcast here. But um, I, I was interested as a women's studies scholar, as a gender scholar, to study pornography. And I was looking at how po- pornography may or may not be le- related to violence against women. Mm. And... So pornography, gender, that got me into violence. And then um, that person I was doing research with, he actually went to law school, became a lawyer. My professor left one and um, started working with another professor and her area of expertise was murder. So it's kind of almost by accident, but then there's a path. And, and she studied um, murder and I started working with her and my dissertation was on um, looking at different theoretical explanations for the level of women 
rates of murder in different parts of the United States. So how often women are murdered or how often they murder? How often they murder and are murdered. So that was, it was victimization and offenders. This is interesting because I know nothing about murder as a citizen or a social scientist. What, do you know a basic statistic for how many murders are committed by women? Because yep. you think that it's not many. I mean, that's the probably gendered notion that I have just from television and the news, but is it a, is it a substantial number? No, and you're, you're a good social scientist, you know. Um, it's between, usually over the time period I've been studying this and the research I have, data going way back, it's, it's in the United States, it's around 12 to 15% of murders are committed by women. That's still higher than I thought it would be. And it's higher in the United States than other countries. Women commit fewer. We, we tend to be a violent uh, nation in the United States. Uh, and often our rates of violence are higher in the U.S. than in other parts of the, the world, especially the, the, the Western, what, we, what is called the Western world. What do you think the underlying conditions of that are from? Is it ease of access to weapons other countries don't have? Is it we're more stressful here? We don't know how to relax. We don't have a six-hour workday like some Western <laughs> European countries. Or, or is it all that probably? I, I like that last theory in particular. Um, let's take off after this. Yes. Um, but yeah, it, it's some of that. Um, and those are the explanations given. One is um, easy access to guns. Um, but then some people say, well, you know, Canada has easy access to guns and, and they don't have the murder rate we have. Um, so I, um, although lots of criminologists find that or argue that guns play a part, I can find research, and I, I write about this in my textbook, there's research that suggests that guns play a part. There's some that say not guns. And there's certainly arguments maybe for high-powered weapons to be put away. Whatever the case is, I try to give a, a, a balanced view in my book so that students can kind of um, wade through that themselves and think about it. Um, some of it is, um, some suggest it's our, it's our, it's our culture, and it's, it goes back historically, our violent nature, look how we became a nation. Mm. You know, we, some would argue we took the country from the Indians, look at our history of slavery, look at how, how violent we have been. And, and, um, and then some argue um, it's how we do masculinity in the United States. And I, I don't know if that works because I think masculinity is similar in a lot of countries. But, you know, we see, you know, 85 to 88% of the murders are, are committed by men. And that, I mean, that's statistically significant, a substantial number. So there's definitely something unusual or of causal concern in the United States concerning the relationship between murder and men. Yeah, some, so, and, and some people argue, well, it's genetics. Well, if it were, if it's simply genetics, you know, what, how are the rates around the, the other parts of, of the world? So, you know, it's, it's complicated like anything, you know, anything we study, you know, if it were just a phys a reaction with adding, you know, a base to an alkali or whatever they do in chemistry. Not that chemistry is easy, but it's more simplistic than humans. It's much more complicated to figure out why this person does murder and, and this or commits murder and this person doesn't. You know, what are the exact things that come together to make make it happen? And it's not to suggest all men are, are murderers or all men are, are violent because they're not and not all go to violence. And some women do. So that that it just makes it... It's part of the fascination for me. I mean, that's why I love social sciences, right? Because we have predictability numbers for, for humans behaving in certain ways, but I always tell my students, there's just always the human element that you just can't capture everything. So I call us the hard science because you can't just formalize everything. Like it's difficult because you always got to have a 10% human factor that you throw into this kind of stuff. We're unpredictable. I mean, someone might commit murder because they're hungry. That day. I mean, you know, whatever that 
just emotive human instinct was that just snapped at us some reason and that's not always predictable and it's the same with warfare i mean you can have two situations in two different states and one leader is going to react and want to go to war over that situation when the same situation in another state it's not going to work well what's the difference could be human personality could just be leadership style i assume it's the same for you know who commits murder it yeah often people that aren't expected it might just be I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, we see patterns, and that's you know, social sciences. So we can say um, if your partner is abusing drugs, if your partner has a history of domestic violence, um, if your partner is abusing you and um, starts using strangling, that's more predictive of murder than if they're abusing you and they're not strangling you. That doesn't mean put up with it, but those are real warning signs that murder's more likely to happen, we found in research. I've done some research uh, on that. And um, so we see these patterns, and so that's the value we add as social scientists, but there's still this unpredictability. That just made me think of something. So if, if, if somebody becomes a domestic perpetrator of violence or murder, does that increase their likelihood to behave the same way outside of the home? Or is it somehow confined to just against their, their domestic partners or families? Or, or is the, there no doubt on that? Well, there, there's certainly cases where we're here of a person and like, I had no idea that they were violent at home. But when we, when we caution people to be on the lookout, you know, how do you know? People who are violent outside the home are likely to be violent inside the home. Now, I don't know how that, I haven't seen data to suggest it works the other way around, but if you're with a partner who's um, like beating up people at the, at the pub or the bar, the, the, yeah, that, that probably shouldn't be the person you're attracted to at the bar, the guy who's you know, causing the, the fights at the bar right. um, or the gal. How does your research and teaching interests affect how you look at the world? And this is a big part of this podcast is just, you know, how do we as social scientists take what we do and then process stuff around us. Uh, you know, often my students find it amazing that I'm a person. <laughs> you know, they're like, I eat and drink and have stress and, you know, I play Xbox and, you know, I do stuff that people do. But when I'm a political science brain doesn't ever turn off. So I, I still look at politics through the spectrum or paradigm of political science. So does sociology, criminology, what you teach, what you've researched, does it influence or shape just how you look at things, how you live your life? Absolutely. I mean, you can't not, you can't, turn, like you say, you can't turn it off. But I think some people would be surprised. Uh, um, I'm not that afraid. Of, I'm not afraid of crime. I'm not stupid. I'm not doing stuff like leaving my doors open, but I, I don't have 40 locks on my door. You know, <laughs> you know they, some people might think you study that and you'd be so afraid that everything could happen. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not, and partly, it, it's, some of it might be the statistics of it all. I know um, I'm, a, I'm a white woman. That get, you know, white women can be murdered. White women can be uh, violated. Um, but I'm a white woman who's 55 years old. That puts me in a certain statistical category. Um, and so that's probably acting on my brain. I'm, I'm um, upper, I'm probably upper middle class now or middle class. Um, as a dean now, I'm probably upper middle class. I suppose I should own that. Um, but all that kind of probably plays in. And, and so that makes me less afraid. But then I, again, I'm, um, 
I'm probably careful in ways other people aren't. I know I had somebody at the house the other day, an HVAC person, and every time he left the house, I realized I was locking the door because he, he came back up for something. He's like, it's just habit, isn't it? And yeah, so you, and I don't know if that's crime or being raised as a woman in our society, um, but yeah, I'm not overly afraid of it. But you, that's interesting. So you notice, though, when you do something like that, that's, I don't know if that, you know, non-person that's the person that doesn't study this would recognize that that's interesting to see how we relate or act towards different situations and if we can catch ourselves in these types of situations in teaching those one of the exercises i would have students do is i would have um everybody say what they do to prevent crime and i'd write what the men did on one side of the board and what the women did on the other side of the board and um women have all kinds of things they put their keys between their fingers. They make sure they, they park in um, lighted areas. They, they don't go out. They'll say they don't go out at um, night alone, so they're always with somebody else. And granted, some men do that too, but women had way more things, in the, and this is over the years and years and years of teaching it. And part of that is how we raise women to be more fearful of crime, and part of it is there's always the fear the fear of rape is, is more, mm. we, we hear of fewer men being raped, although we do know that happens in our society. Um, but, you know, how, how does gender affect even how we behave in terms of crime? When I just told you more of the homicide is done by men, men are more likely to be killed as well. So is that an unrealistic feel? fear? It's mostly, you know, the most likely is younger men, but probably the most fearful crime is, is older women. How do your students react when you start talking about this and get into it? And talk about it, if you don't mind, your, I can't remember the details of it, but I know you have a pretty famous teaching methodology involving like murder tape and stuff like that. Yeah, we do. Um, we earlier, well, first of all, the way the students react is they, 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 they think about it and they, they make cases for why they do what they do. And one of the things I'm really careful to do is say, if you do something to make yourself feel better, long as you're not like mentally unhealthy, do what makes you feel better. We're not making fun of what you do. Mm -hmm. It's important that you do what makes you safe and, and makes you feel safe. Um, but some of them have never thought about it, how men and women, and particularly a lot of times the men haven't thought about it. Right, right. All the stuff that, that um, women in our society, how we have to behave differently than men in the world. Um, you know, I know you're a runner, um, and you're, you're probably careful to be safe, but um, my guess is your wife might not might think about things differently if she were running, or I might think about things differently. So um, one of the things I do that you'd ask about in my murder class is, um, we call it the murder class, uh, sociology of murder, is go back to how often, how many people are murdered and they're real people, is different terms, I've done different things. Um, sometimes I have a paperclip that represents each individual victim. Um, We've done chalk marks to note how off for every murdered victim, and that's to make students aware of how many people are actually murdered. So if we take a paper clip for each murder victim and we click it together and we make a chain of paper clips, and we I keep emphasizing over and over again, and they and they get into it themselves. Each one of these represents a murder mm -hmm. victim, and then think about how many people that's impacting. It, it really strikes it because if we say 14,000 people were murdered, you're like 14,000 people, okay. But if you have 14,000 paper clips, that's just overwhelming to think those were all murdered victims. So trying to emphasize how many we really do have. So I do things like that in the in the class. I mean that's a great experiential learning project for the for the students there. 
And it's got to like put a damper on them, right? Yeah. <laughs> to realize that that's, you know, how many people get, is that the roundabout average number per year? That, that, that was the, the last year I was teaching the class, I think two years ago, it was around 14,000. Um, it had been, it'd been more and we'd been going down. So um, that was helpful. The other thing I have students do, I say any student that comes across you while you're doing this, who says something or looks at you, explain what you're doing, explain why we're doing this. And then we also usually reach out to the local media. Um, we have our own campus media follow it. And I make the point that, look, we have something we care about. We're trying to get attention for it. And so I'm kind of teaching them how, how do you get attention for things that you think are important in our society. So it's, you know, on different levels, we're learning all kinds of things. So the university setting isn't just to teach theory and you know, data, it's also to teach how to be engaged citizens, how to, how to be involved with your society, to be virtuous citizens, as you know, Aristotle would say, being right involved means to be virtuous. Or, you know, Aristotle says you can't really be human if you're not political, and that means being engaged with your society and doing things to, for the common interest of the whole. Absolutely. And in political doesn't mean being a Republican or being Democrat. It means making trying to make changes for the better, bringing attention to things that matter to you. Yeah, engaged community building uh, helps everybody. Yeah. How do we help this situation? You know, what can we do as a society based on what you've learned from all your years of research and teaching to alleviate homicide? Can you yeah. give us anything? This is a hard one. This is my, the last chapter. I mean, some of the stuff that we do um, and some of the things that are being done across the country, and, and including in, 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 in Richmond, right here in Richmond County, Georgia, is um, we're trying to reach out and make things better for people who might get in those situations where murder is likely. I mean, one of the things they've done across the country is the, the police often know who are the victims and offenders are going to be. I mean, they don't know everybody, but they know these are the people who are getting in trouble for the kinds of crimes that then they end up being victims or offenders. And, and a lot of times... They can't predict if they're going to be the victim or the offender, but they're the, they're the youth in the society that are having issues, that are out of work, that haven't maybe finished high school or things like that. And, and what they're doing in a lot of, a lot of places, and, and there's some data that suggests this is starting to work, um, but it's really intensive, is they're reaching out to them and trying to get them engaged in um, getting them employed, getting them social service help, um, things of, of that sort. So... Is that called community? Is that community policing? Is that what that is? Um, it, yeah, it, it's 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 getting to know who the people are and trying to to help them. So solving the problem kind of before it happens, um, and it it seems to work. It's funny we go through phases. I've been a criminologist long enough to see we tried get tough on crime, and that's I would argue that it worked to some extent. Locking up people keeps them from killing other free people. Now they could still kill or hurt other people incarcerated. Um, and so that does have some impact. But overall, do we want to live in a society where we just lock everybody up is one question. So it, it helps to some extent. But we could say preventing it before it happens would be even more helpful. Um, having classes, and this is really hard with the pandemic and thing, but classes where we help young kids, especially young males, learn how to solve problems without violence. And I assume it's cheaper for society to prevent murder than to go through the trial after a murder and incarcerate somebody afterwards and all that. Like, it, it makes sense to upload the money rather than pay it afterwards. Because, you know, there's economic interests at stake here as well. Absolutely. Front door, front, call them front door solutions are way better than the back door. And the, the, whole, the family, didn't ha family didn't have to go through their family member being murdered or... 
their family member murdering somebody. Right. I mean, you lose, if, if my brother kills somebody, I've lost my brother for all right. intents and purposes. He's locked up now. And it's tough on both families. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I don't think of it from that situation often. Yeah, that's another thing I point out in my, my class. It's, it's, it's not just, you know, we, of course, the, the family of the murder victim is important to focus on, but the, the people who've lost someone, and sometimes it's the same family. That's something a lot of people don't think right. about. If the dad kills the mom, oh, the poor kids. Right. I mean, the, the, they've lost a mom and they've, essentially, and they've lost the dad. And they have to deal their lives with the dad killed the mom. Another reason to be just empathetic towards <laughs> yes. people, I guess. It's hard topics to talk about. Let's switch to something completely different okay. and talk about building research murder with Lego blocks. I know there's some kind of fascination with Lego blocks. Is that, am I saying Lego, it the right yeah. way? Lego bricks, Lego, Lego blocks. bricks. Yeah, yeah, Sorry. very good. Yeah, it's, um, it's what I do to uh, maybe sometimes not think about murder at all. Although lately I've been listening to stuff about murder, why I build Lego. I've been listening to some stuff on Netflix about some cases and stuff. But um, yeah, um, years ago, I, um, I was looking for something to do to keep me entertained after um, we'd redone our house and I didn't have any other things to tear apart and stuff. So I went to uh, Barnes and Noble and got some uh, puzzles, jigsaw puzzles, and I got a Lego kit. And I uh, never did the cross, never did the jigsaw puzzle. I did the Lego, and um, I have a whole room full of Lego now. Um, I do it. Um, started with just doing the kits, and then I started making my own buildings. They, they're called mocks or my own creations, and oh. uh, it's been it's taken me as almost as many places as murder have. I kind of joke that um, between studying murder and building Lego, I've had a lot of um, great opportunities. And that's got to be a good way to relate to students as well, just letting them know that you, you, you have this interest. Again, just reminding people that we're people. We're people, <laughs> you know, yeah. Students so often just, you know, lecturing or discussing in the classroom, but, you know, we do these things as hobbies and everything. Yeah. That's great. How can people uh, follow you or, or are you, do you want to give your social media access or if people I, I can think contact I'm, us? I think I'm Dr. Davies 706 on Instagram. I think I'm PhD derivative. Um, which could be looked at down like derivative. Why would you do that? But kind of like we build research on, on, on other people. So it's derivative in, in that way. Aww. I was trying to think of a clever title when I came up with it. It's okay. Um, but yeah, that's what I am on, on Twitter. And um, I don't pay that much attention to Facebook. And tell us about your book a, l a little bit. So if people can, can, are interested in this, they can buy that. Okay. It, it's coming out in September? In September. It's due out Oxford University Press, due out in um, September. Hopefully it'll be a reasonable price. I have no idea what it'll be. It will be available on Amazon. Um, it is a textbook, though. It's good to know that it's a textbook, although I've had lots of students tell me that they've enjoyed it, even though it's a textbook. Uh, I wrote it very much in my own voice. Students who've read it, the, the first, this is a first edition, but I had another first edition. It's kind of a weird thing. In 2007, I, I first wrote it, and then um, I, uh, and that was with Prentice Hall, and Prentice Hall um, wasn't interested in doing another one, so I reached out to Oxford University Press and asked them if they were interested, told them how I'd change it, what I'd do, and they said, yeah, we'll, we'll go for it. But they thought there were so many years in between, and we changed it enough that they wanted to do another uh, first edition. Um, but it's, I think it's 14 chapters. I talk about confrontational homicide. I talk about theories of homicide. I um, Different than a lot of textbooks that the students, nobody would know listening, but I talk about investigation. I talk about courts. So it's kind of a whole spread of homicide from the theory definitions, the law, to you know how might we maybe prevent it. 
That's awesome. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll throw a link for that in the show notes as well so uh, people can go out there and get that book. This has been awesome. Uh, this it's is been a, really a fun. great first episode. I talked about some tough issues, but hopefully I learned a lot and hopefully the listeners will as well. Make sure you follow us on social media. Like us, subscribe, share, comment, email. We are at beyond underscore bias underscore podcast on the gram. Our YouTube channel is beyond bias podcast channel. Feel free to email us anything at beyondbiaspodcast at gmail.com. And of course, follow me, your host, Dr. Craig Albert, on all the outlets on social media. It's all the same hashtag or at, what's it called? The same handle at Dr. Craig D. Albert. And if you ask us any questions, we will respond on our official channels, on the official accounts. And if you have any ideas or interests of shows or topics or people you'd like to hear from, just drop some comments in and, and we'll get right on that and get in touch with you. Uh, thanks so much, Dr. Davies. This has been fun. And as always, we want to end with a quote from Alexis de Tocqueville, the eminent social and political philosopher. You knew I was going to throw yes. Tocqueville in every episode somehow. Tocqueville writes, to instruct democracy, if possible, to reanimate its beliefs, to purify, to purify its mores, to regulate its movements, to substitute little by little the science of affairs for its inexperience and knowledge of its true interest for its blind instincts, to adapt its government to the time and place, to modify it according to circumstances and men, such as the first duty imposed on those who direct society in our day. And if you want to know more what that means, go read Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville. I'm Dr. Craig Albert signing off with Dr. Kim Davies. Be nice to someone today and know that you are loved.